Scientists have identified the key ways in which we humans are destroying the ecosystems on which we depend. Is there climate change? Yeah. I mean, will it change back? Probably. That's what I think. How dare you? The British Conservation Alliance was launched by students in the United Kingdom to advocate for market-based environmental reforms. You should be empowered to deal with those problems. Lebanon, Poland, Spain, the US, the UK, Austria. It's just really cool seeing all these people gather to talk about these ideas when we weren't doing this a year ago, and we're doing it now. We can begin to defend the Earth against the disaster of global warming. The Green Market Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Green Market Podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by two men who have done their fair share of media over the past few days, all in the name of making one thing explicitly clear to the public, that being green is easy. First up, we've got Matthew Leish, head of research at the Adam Smith Institute, which is one of the world's leading think tanks, whilst we're also joined yet again by BCA's own policy director, Connor Tomlinson. How are you both? I know you've both done a lot of talking over the past few days and typing, so I imagine you're both absolutely shattered to me. Are we ready for one more? You, you'll hopefully get the best out of me if the listenership isn't sick of my voice and face by, by this point. I don't think I can ever match up to Connor's media whoring away record over the last few days. So. When you put it like that, Matt. <laughs> I mean, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of you from, from, from one media whore to another. Um, <laughs> may, may we do our absolute best to, to take every opportunity uh, to have our face everywhere possible. So you guys, could you give, essentially, for anyone that's somehow not seen any of the media coverage over the past few days, you released a report a few days ago between the Adam Smith Institute and, and Connor, obviously, with BCA. The key takeaways from that report, obviously titled it, It Is Easy To Be Green. The key takeaways from someone who maybe doesn't have the time to read through the 65 pages, what were the three main things that they should really be focusing on coming out of it? Well, I, I think it's well worth diving in, even if you can't make the 65 pages, because Matt and I together have collaborated on a very solid introduction and a summary at the start, which summarizes the three main issues as being the application of the market environmentalist framework, which is broken down into its component parts in the paper, to three very distinct issues, uh, nuclear power and how to fund it, uh, carbon tax and making it revenue neutral so that it doesn't adversely affects the least economically well-off in society and Britain's membership in clean free trade agreements and, and making a more sustainable trade environment globally, less protectionist, um, uh, one that empowers innovation a lot more. And the paper itself also delves into the philosophy of it, which is my sort of bread and butter a lot of the time as well. I think a lot of uh, policy wonks on, on our side of the aisle, the reason they lose the arguments against the more socialist or fascist minded that flank us is because they don't have a grand narrative to present. And thankfully, it's great that market environmentalism is not only the most effective way of addressing climate issues, but also it's the most ethical, most principle first. Um, and it's got a long history of, of human ingenuity backing it up throughout the centuries. And we draw on a lot of that and also contrast it to a lot of the socialist failures and whatnot in the paper. So um, if even if you don't have time to dive into the 65 pages, it is worth to uh, skim through and look at the applications of the issues because as well, as, as we've already highlighted, I have a tendency to be a firebrand and we've got some contentious stuff in there that's, that's all very well backed up but makes for a few raised eyebrows. Yeah, I think the paper comes at quite an opportune moment, uh, although Akkad has been working on it for, for quite some time. We've seen this, uh, the re-arrival of Extinction Rebellion on our streets, shutting down bridges and um, smashing in windows at JP Morgan. They're also going after the World Wildlife Foundation and uh, the Science Museum because they're the true enemies of the world these days, apparently. On top of that, though, we've got this, this tendency, even if Extinction Rebellion might not be 
uh, in the halls of power, people who certainly have a lot of sympathy for their worldviews seem to be setting government policy. So on things like the rumoured nappy tax, although sadly for, for political activists, something the government um, quickly shoved aside. They haven't shoved aside other policies like banning single-use plastic plates, cutlery, polystyrene cups, as well as the existing bans on plastic straws, stirs and cotton buds. And then we've got all these other bans coming in on things like petrol cars and gas boilers and a, a huge set of government efforts with the Environment Bill to, to set a wide array of targets and goals in a, a kind of very Soviet-esque five-year plan methodology. And I suppose the key message from Connor's paper in the first instance is just that there is an alternative to that approach. There is an alternative to saying that the state is the, the, the solution to every single environmental problem. And that in fact, the only way and the best way to address environmental issues is the, to use the, the, the engine that it delivers our prosperity, which is which is the free market, which is, delivers the entrepreneurs, the innovatism that has made us prosperous. And that we not only has that in the past been with the environment because we've developed so many new technologies, we're producing more with less. So uh, we're just purely on, let's say, agriculture, we're producing more food using less land, less pesticides, less water. It also can be used the market to address specific environmental issues, be it overfishing, which is a classic tragedy of the commons, or even climate change, which is more or less a negative externality in production. You know, we've, had, we've got all this carbon because uh, we got prosperous and rich over the Industrial Revolution and by producing things and, uh, and energy, that's all great. But okay, there's negative consequence here. What do we do about that? I mean, economic economists have a pretty simple, simple answer, which is just put a tax on it, um, tax the externality, uh, and that, that'll encourage the innovation. So rather than the typical environmental approach, which is to blame the market system for environmental failure, which is just completely ahistorical and, and untrue because it's not the system that is to, to blame of a free market system. It's just the fact of humanity producing things. And you get that in socialism or capitalism or whatever other system of, of government you might have. Actually using the power of the market to address those environmental issues and saying, yes, you can be a free marketeer and you can be an environmentalist. And that's not in contradiction. That, I think, is a fantastic introduction from both of you. It seemed very, very well practiced, unsurprisingly. One of the first things that is really focused on in the paper is something which I think probably in, in the wider public stirs up a fair amount of controversy, and that is nuclear power. I think you'd probably um, argue that that controversy is maybe somewhat unjustified and, and, and built on almost a campaign of of fear by by activists who maybe have some ulterior motive or are just uninformed how do you tackle that fear of nuclear power that many in the public have is that is that a really long-term thing we have to do because lots of people still kind of seem to have this idea that the second that we've got any sort of nuclear power station we are damned to this kind of nuclear wasteland future uh, that is far from accurate yeah, it's not quite a fallout situation. I think part of what, what it's, it's a link to what, and the, we discussed this uh, earlier today when we recorded our episode of uh, The Pin Factory with Adam Smith's podcast. One of the main things that drives utilitarian policymaking, which the government does a lot of, and which market environmentalism is principled first approach is, is very much against that, is a sort of utopian ambition. And that posits that the present is somewhat dystopian. And that has been the trajectory, especially of, of apocalyptic projections since the last century and well into this one. And the Extinction Rebellion style or AOC Green New Deal, we only have 10 years left to save the world, misinterpretation of the IPCC report is one of those. And the anti-nuclear sentiment is very much born out of the, the precursor to that, which was the Cold War narrative, which was anything to do with nuclear um, has to do with 
volatility of, of nuclear extinction under the threat of nuclear war. And one of the main things we tackle in the paper is dispelling a lot of those myths about the toxicity of wastage, the inability to manage it, um, the lacks of the safety regulations. I know people always try out, oh, but what about Chernobyl? Actually, that's a pretty good example of why centrally planned economics and uh, socialism is anathema to progress and environmental conservation, because it's actually the suppression of whistleblowing and the lack of safety standards. And the, as Matt said, with our present government, with the way they're sitting, commissars essentially for production rather than going through an efficient method and, and innovating and improving production methods and safety regulations. It's, it's a case study against that and less so against nuclear. And that's why uh, in free market nations, for example, as close as we've got presently, nuclear power, particularly in France, uh, generates a lot of energy with, with carbon neutral methods um, relatively cheaply. And, and they, the only costs are implicit in the hefty costs for production, but not uh, during the life cycle. So one of the things we focus on, as well as busting the myths around the dangers of nuclear, is also trying to deconstruct the barriers to entry that nuclear power has, particularly in, in funding, um, in construction, and during getting over all the hurdles that the engineers have to do to meet regulations, which are necessary, but obviously incur costs over time. Yeah, look, I think the story around nuclear energy is pretty straightforward, which is what we need is to be able to maintain our current level of electricity use. It doesn't seem realistic to say that not only should those in the West lower their quality of life, but also those in the developing world um, shouldn't be able to raise themselves to our standard of living. That's quite a carbon intensive process if you use coal and, and gas and, and fossil fuels. But we, we have an alternative. That alternative is not renewables because renewables can't provide the same level of base load energy that you need. And you did a, an excellent calculation, Connor, that, that the battery storage capacity of using um, solar and gas would be something like 2.3 trillion pounds, which is more than the size of the UK economy. And that would basically mean using all battery production in the world just to, to feed the UK's need for batteries. So it's not renewables, but we do have something else that extremely efficiently produces energy and with pr practically no carbon emissions other than in, in some initial in the construction process. So it is something that's been proven safe. It's something that's used all over the world, uh, which is nuclear energy. Um, and the, the biggest case study for this, I think, is just the comparison between France and Germany. France has long since adopted nuclear energy, partly as an effort for a um, uh, energy security. Uh, they have some of the lowest per capita carbon emissions in the world, just as a result of that. Um, contrast that to Germany, where Angela Merkel decided that one of her, her big acts would be to end nuclear energy by 2022. That's resulted in Germany having to use more coal um, and delay the closure of coal plants and resulted in, in more carbon emissions in Germany. So you've really got, it's really a simple calculation here. If you want to reduce carbon emissions, you've got to embrace nuclear. There's, there's no other choice. And it's unfortunate that so many environmental movement have taken a very unscientific approaches because you know they'll constantly claim well we're following the science on climate change we need to do something about climate change well great if you're following the science of climate change listen to what the ipcc says which is that nuclear energy has to be part of the mix and if you don't include nuclear energy you can't get you can't achieve the goals you need to achieve in terms of decarbonization and maintaining our energy supply in a, in a sustainable manner why do you think so many of those organizations like xr for example do come out against nuclear energy is, is there something dangerous there or is it pure ignorance uh, XR will be quick to say that they don't have formal policy positions and they just want a citizens assembly etc but they won't engage with any solutions and if you speak to your activists I don't think you're going to find many who support nuclear energy the Zion Lights I think is an extremely good example here and, and she can talk about this far more elegant than, than me because she's been in environmental activism for a long time she went on the Andrew Neil um, show got absolutely slammed by Andrew Neil um, and, and after that she kind of felt so embarrassed that 
that she couldn't discuss solutions yet to step down as a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion and is now um, one of the UK's leading nuclear energy activists. I think there's just this this very old style instinct that, that has been developed in, in popular culture and literature around nuclear energy is what, what Connor was saying. Um, and then there's also a little bit of a conspiracy as well, which is the, 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 the um, fossil fuel industry is very happy to talk down nuclear energy because they, they know it's their competitor. Uh, and, and they know that it, it is what can replace coal and gas very easily, whilst they can actually keep their coal and gas going for a little bit longer if they can stop nuclear energy as a replacement solution. So it's it's a bit of a mixture of like well-meaning environmentalists and um, efforts. And and, and uh, Michael Schoenberger uh, talks about this quite effectively in the, in the US context. Just the extent of funding from the fossil fuel industry for anti-nuclear activism is, is crazy. It's also a bit of nimbyism in there. You know, I don't want a nuclear reactor near me, um, so it's very hard to do. It becomes very expensive. Um, rightfully so that I suppose that there's regulation nuclear industry it's quite heavily regulated that adds to the cost makes it a bit less viable I mean the best case against nuclear is that you know on a marginal basis it's actually not as cheap as you'd like it to be compared to to solar and wind although that doesn't consider the the grid costs particularly well or or the energy storage costs which are huge and and make a big difference so it's a bit of a complex economic story there that sometimes needs to be explained now just because the the prices and things are varying but fundamentally there's just an old as kind of saying cold war narrative against nuclear that um is unscientific i think it's helpful um to bring up something like the cold war because it does speak to some international relations questions that have especially in the uk been brought up in regards to nuclear and involvement in our kind of nuclear infrastructure from powers who we see as as less than friendly um and sometimes when it's it's someone like like france that's it's not so much of an issue but when the chinese are directly involved in the uk nuclear power infrastructure infrastructure and its development people start to ask serious questions about national security obviously um i think some of which those fears have been allayed um, but do you think that we do need to take a harder line on the type of people that we invite in to help? Or do we just need to do it? So we just need to kind of bite our tongue on that and, and let it go. We need to liberalise the economic mechanisms so it doesn't appear necessary not only to have a massive amount of state funding, but also to partner with potentially hostile actors. And uh, as much as a lot of people say, oh, OK, well, if it's not the Chinese government, it's Chinese firms investing. Yes, but every Chinese firm is uh, part owned by the Chinese government because you have to have a certain portion of your company dedicated to the CCP. You have to have a certain faction in there. Um, so there's there's no such thing as China is a completely fascistic economy. Um, so there's no such thing as, as you know private corporation separate from the state there. So what we can do, and we suggest in the paper, is using, uh, I believe, the, we worked with Clean Capitalist Coalition on the idea of this before. I'll, I'll name drop Rob Richardson because he'll love me for it. Um, but we took his idea and sort of ran with it and said, okay, if there's a sustainable infrastructure, um, tax-exempt bonds and loans, can this be used in some facet in conjunction with adjusting the feed-in tariff mechanism uh, to fund nuclear power construction over its lifetime that won't have to rely on government subsidies or, or large state stuff overbroad, and it can actually diversify the funding mechanism so much that the private sector can chip in in large amounts or even uh, multiple smaller amounts that can, that can help it fund over time. And so creating the policies which mean the large state funding and state funding from some more hostile actors, um, the reliance on that isn't necessary, uh, uh, means that we can avoid those diplomatic um, crises and, and international incidents. Bringing up subsidies is a, a pretty good segue here into essentially the second major part of, of the paper that discusses the idea of a carbon tax and, and shines light on 
something that I have always struggled with not getting more kind of uh, more light shone on it in in the public sphere, which is the de facto subsidies that um, fossil fuels currently enjoy. Could you guys just for for people that may not be aware of that um, lay that out pretty clearly as to as to what's really going on here? Because the government have an easy out and they keep using it. Yeah, uh, essentially we don't. We don't directly subsidize fossil fuels in this country, but they do get the same VAC exemption rate as the emerging renewables tech. So that would count as an indirect subsidy. They have a cut VAT rate. So what we proposed in the paper is eliminating it and, and raising it to the same level as the other goods. So that would disincentivize continual reliance on fossil fuels and incentivize expansion out into renewables or, or nuclear uh, over time, and also a conversion of the existing plants to run on new fuels. So it's also in the best interest of fossil fuel companies to diversify their business model and sustain their model beyond the point where, where we wean ourselves off of fossil fuels. Um, fossil fuels obviously constituted a necessary stage in human development without the industrial revolution we wouldn't have low infant mortality raised life expectancy etc we wouldn't even have an appreciation for nature as i as i explain in the paper itself in my little uh, more more culture warrior ways that's my literary geek coming in but without the contrast to city dwelling uh, we wouldn't have a rejuvenated wilderness or the romantic poets that britain's so famous for could have written about um so to to get off of fossil fuels is now our imperative because although it was necessary for a while it's like getting addicted to painkillers it's great as a, as a form of therapy but when you get hooked on it it's detrimental to your own health and rather than doing a cold turkey method um, we need to wean ourselves off over time as a drip feed strategy so we don't create some sort of uh, system shock for the least well-off in society and that does mean eliminating indirect subsidies of course um, but it also means creating the economic conditions which can uh, uh, allow private sector actors to fund innovation into alternative fuels so the transition is more seamless uh, yeah, I think that's that, that explains it quite well for people that aren't aware, and it, it it speaks to the direction as well that I think the wider debate has gone in. That something like that hasn't had so much more focus, and the UK government, when it's been challenged on it in the past, has truthfully said, "Well, we don't give money to fossil fuel companies," which they technically don't, and people have kind of just gone, "Okay, fine," and moved on. And I, it is very important to align on the fact that there is money essentially de facto still subsidizing these companies something that you did mention as well in your report is that it's really important that this is definitely not seen as a revenue generating exercise why is that because i think a, a lot of people um, especially in today's politics see government as the, these massive uh, essentially conglomerates that uh, constantly need to find new ways to make money to pay for all manner of public services and i know there's a a very philosophical reason why a lot of people aren't happy with that but in terms of specifically from the environmental debate why is that so important to make clear i think this kind of comes back to a moment i had uh, a few years ago now pre-pandemic at a um as a, a student economics conference i was on this panel um, sitting next to an academic who's kind of making the point that well we shouldn't use taxes in order to address climate change and environmental issues because that'll have a backlash um, and he kind of pointed to the Jela Jong uh, in France which was obviously a bigger, bit of a bigger issue pre-pandemic where you had these massive kind of populist protests against um, uh, Macron plans to introduce um, uh, new taxes on, on roads and um, fuel and cars um, and in a sense you've got a rightful claim by people that uh, 
it's it's kind of metropolitan city dwellers that actually have less of a carbon footprint. It's why one of the reasons why urbanization is great for the environment. Um, but at the same time, you, you have lower income, often working class people who actually have a higher environmental impact. So if you start increasing taxes on them, um, they've already got low incomes, so they're less able to afford them. And and at the same, then you end up with this issue we've got right now, effectively the government's facing, which is um, p- people are starting to click on to the huge cost of what the government's trying to do. And the, the Red Wall Tory MPs are a bit like, well, I didn't know a kind of environmental central policy agenda was what the, the, I signed up for. Um, and it's something that my constituents signed up for when they voted Tory in 2019. So you've got this kind of central political economy issue um, with environmental, the environmental challenge. Uh, and you can do what that person in that panel suggested um, who was the next mission we do, which is we should just regulate um, the, the companies. Now, and then, therefore that doesn't pass along the cost to the consumers. Now that was for someone who was meant to be a, a smart academic, that seemed like the most absurd thing I'd ever heard of my life. If they didn't realize that regulating actually puts costs onto businesses and it actually just hides the cost. This is what's often not realized with a lot of environmental policies. We don't use clear mechanisms like a carbon tax or, or like a proper VAT rating, but we do put these huge regulatory requirements to companies to act in a way that is conducive with our environmental goals. And then they that is subtly pushed onto consumers, the reason why um, energy prices have increased so much in recent decades, and partly to, to fund the renewable energy efforts. Uh, and and the the investment required in the grid in order to make that that viable. So the, I think the entire point, um, in addition to the kind of VAT question it, it highlighted in the report, is this about carbon tax, which is let's explicitly say what the cost is of um, carbon. Let's let's make that quite clear. Let's use the best mechanism we know how, which is the price mechanism, so that it's actually felt in the cost of production, so that we we force companies to internalize um, the cost of carbon. Uh, their carbon footprint and, and the carbon in their production. And then that incentivizes them to reduce the carbon, or if not, they, they might pass on some of those costs to consumers. But, and this is the key point here, which is we can use some of that revenue to um, compensate, or use all that revenue, I should say, to compensate consumers. So that rather than this being a revenue raising exercise, it's actually something that um, is a more efficient tax because it's taxing something you don't want. You should try to tax things you don't want, not things you want. So you, you try not to tax investment and you do try to tax um, negative externalities and then minimize the burden to citizens as, as, as a result of that um, impost. So you get the cash from the tax to pass back to people. Probably practically also means increasing some welfare benefit just because not everyone necessarily pays um, income tax, whatever you might reduce. But it, it, it has a much better distributional impact um, and you, you try to minimize that opposition to environmental policies that can happen in the, in the short run. Um, and it can sometimes be justified um, distributionally. Just people do feel worse off if you just throw a tax on them and you don't compensate them properly. To most like conservatives in the general public, that that's something that would make a lot of sense, and I think you'd probably find that even amongst conservative members, that's something that would poll very highly. Why do you think then that at the moment, obviously we've got a government that calls itself conservative, why is this? Why does this seem such a far shot off for them? Why is this something that realistically they're not going to look at? I think temperamentally, the conservatives are very risk averse. Um... As I joked earlier on the uh, sort of Institute podcast that will be out very soon, um, I'm sure as much as Boris said, oh, Maggie Thatcher would have been delighted with our environmental policies because she closed the coal mines. I think Maggie Thatcher, even though I'm not Thatcher, would be spinning in her grave right about now if she saw the amount of spending that they're trying to do. Uh, I think what the issue is, the Tories have become very rigid with the lack of a tenable opposition. Um, and I'm not one that's trying to bolster Labour's electoral fortitude because... I 
fundamentally disagree with all of their philosophy, not least because they're also utilitarians. But without a tenable opposition in the commons, just to even shut them down, um, they're, they're getting very complacent at the ballot box. And that means that they're not very receptive to new ideas. And a lot of the free marketeers, the libertarians, as we've seen with the lockdown skeptics, have been regulated to the back bench. They've been a very much minority voice. And instead, they've been led by the so-called panel of experts. So it's quite concerning, for example, to see Sage, um, who have had open communists on their panel uh, switching, uh, switching over now to a climate advisory board because I think it's going to have a large control, large spend, um, uh, equitable outcomes approach rather than the market approach we're, we're doing. So what I think the Tories actually need to do is, as the expert on large ears, open up their ears and, and give us a listen and, uh, and try and see if you can avoid being punished at the ballot box down the road, even if you're just a, a politician purely interested in, in electoral legibility. Um, and if you're a politician who is interested in effective policies and uh, ethical righteousness, then it's pretty clear as the paper makes the case, as you know, Green Market Revolution made the case, as Matt and I have made our, made our, uh, our recent careers on the case, that market environmentalism is the way forward for, for being principled and practical. That links in very well then with another, what has been stereotypically seen as a fundamentally conservative um, ideal in regards to the removal of trade barriers. That's also something that you've probably, I think people expected to see a lot more of after Brexit, and we've really not seen as much of it as a lot of people hoped for or expected, and some people were fearful of. Why do you think there's hesitancy to remove trade barriers like that, especially ones which, if, if targeted correctly, could have, could be so positive for the environment? Is that the same complacency? I think there's a lot of interest from the government on this claim-free trade point. I, I wouldn't be so... Um uh negative with respect to that and um, the, the government is uh looking very closely at this and and the trade secretary liz trust has put environmental free trade as one of her central themes when she's signing on to trade deals uh, and th there's a lot of potential there uh, to make this policy point if anything where you're, you're pushing it an open door corner um with your discussion discussion of claim free trade um in, in the report just to explain that though a little bit further to your listeners this is this idea that um, first of all, we know free trade is good because it's efficient and efficiency means less environmental impact. So you're producing more with less. And um, this is the whole myth that you should eat local. Don't actually eat local necessarily. Um, a good example of this is um, New Zealand lamb. Um, New Zealand lamb is actually, even after cutting for transport, um, less carbon intensive than Welsh lamb just because New Zealand lamb is so much more efficient than Welsh lamb. So, and it's, it's similar with a bunch of other products. So consume because most of the, the carbon footprint from these products is actually in production, not in transport, and transport's a relatively small part of it. So trade in itself can be quite good um, in that first respect for efficiency. It can be good for um, sharing knowledge about environmental, good environmental practices. Um, and then in the third instance, then it's actually about what policy changes can we make? So this is about removing tariffs on environmental goods. There's some interest, and there's already been some movement from the government on that front. Uh, it's just a matter of the, the government likes to keep some tariffs in place so that they can, in, in a traditional kind of old mercantilist sense, negotiate um, in trade deals about tariffs. So I'm, I'm personally in favour of uh, unilateral tariff elimination. I don't think the UK should have any tariffs. Unfortunately, um, the agriculture industry, not a big fan of me for saying that. And on top of that, the government does like to keep on small tariffs on things so that they can remove them in trade deals. So they can say, you know, we're, we're, we can give you something. So they leave on these very tiny, unnecessary tariffs. And I think that the point about clean free trade is to say, well, don't leave on those unnecessary tariffs on environmental goods. It's it's something that is we know is super beneficial to be trading in. And then there's also discussion about joining acts, which is a, a, a trade agreement, which is currently being negotiated, focused on environmental 
um, related trade, in, including eco-labeling and a few other issues associated with that. So I think that's a, a really big opportunity for free marketeers to link the kind of post-Brexit narrative, um, global Britain with the environmental narrative, uh, and it's a relatively easy win-win scenario. Something that was lauded by the UK government in, in terms of one of the big post-Brexit successes was the UK obviously uh, looking to join the CPTTP. I know I've spoken to Connor about his concerns about it in the past and, and lots of people may have, it may have just been a blip on their radar, but there are obviously quite big environmental concerns in the long term um, about commitments that the UK has essentially made by joining that. Connor, do you want to explain to the the more casual kind of purveyor of politics yeah. what those issues might be? I'm fine to summarise. I, I sort of stumbled across this stuff when doing a bit of research ahead of the uh, US presidential elections. I did an article comparing the environmental policies of both candidates on the run-up to it and was kind of shocked to find that in the long term, um, knocked me down with a feather, President Trump had slightly better environmental policies than, than the Biden campaign, um, not least of all because Bernie Sanders was running Joe Biden's climate policy, but there you go. Um, one of the main things that was involved was Biden's re-entry into the TPP. Now, the TPP as a, as a network isn't a terrible idea, specifically when the idea was marketed as a, an anyone but China club, essentially, and as, as China's actions on the world stage prove, we need some pretty strong allies against people who aren't particularly in favour of free trade or human rights, etc. Um, the main problem is, though, it has an investor state disclosure agreement clause, which means that you are obligated to buy certain products from certain member states. And if the state does not buy from the member states companies, the uh, country who discontinues buying is on the hook for lawsuits. And we saw this as a case study in the article I wrote about it quite a while ago, I believe we spoke about this on, on your podcast no, a while, while back and in the paper, where President Trump um, reignited the Keystone XL pipeline and removed the sort of Damocles that was a trans-Canada lawsuit hanging over America's head. And on the first day in office, Joe Biden rescinded that, and it looks like that is currently going to be reopened. The same thing sort of happened with Germany and the Nordstrom pipeline and Russia. Um, one of the things that's also linked to the nuclear power thing, because as soon as you turn off your power plants, you need oil, and there's a lot of complications with that uh, environmentally and economically. Um, so one of the main provisions we need to look at if we're going to enter the TPP, which it seems we're very intent on doing so, uh, Liz Truss again, one of my favorite politicians, one of the one of few that actually keeps my faith in the Tory party as a non-Tory. Um, she's been doing the rounds for every country trying to net Britain post-Brexit trade deals. She's been hammering home at this. One of the things we do need to do is make our membership um, conditional on the fact that it does not rescind our domestic efforts to protect the environment and, and reach net zero targets, whether that's 2050 or whether that's beyond because it's feasibility is in question, um, just by the fact that the taxpayer will be on the hook to keep buying fossil fuels well beyond the 2050 target. Um, we can't be paying for that because that's completely unsustainable. From a more uh, broad perspective then, in terms of all of these issues that we've discussed, something like um, the huge controversy again um, with XR, wanting to make themselves the focus point of attention, is that helpful for this kind of paper and, and its likelihood of of hitting the the, the people it really needs to hit and, and changing the narrative into something slightly more positive yeah i i think the the embarrassment on the other side and the fact that also their leaders are so incapable of being forthright and they trot out um emissaries that they can then plausibly deny at the moment they say something wrong on live tv shows that they don't have 
the, the most foremost upfront of their convictions that they're, they're happy to use, as Matt already said, people who are well-meaning and care about the environment as the foot soldiers for totalitarian socialism. So I think the, the ridiculousness, the inefficacy of their strategies, also the fact that they're playing pantomime in the middle of the road and getting on everyone's nerves is actually an accidental boon to the fact that not only are our arguments more effective and more principled, but also by contrast, they, they seem as sensible as they actually are. There's an interesting sense in which they, the, the doomsters and the gloomsters of the environmental movement, that they're constantly selling this message again and again about uh, resource depletion and now climate change. It's the end of the universe, the end of the world. And um, resource, resource depletion certainly I don't think is a, is a major issue because we, we have the ability to innovate. Um, climate change is a serious issue, um, but it's also an issue, we, again, we can innovate and we can use the entrepreneurial ability of humanity to, to get through and get out of. And it's in fact the only way we're going to be able to get out of this um, other than literally going back and into caves, which doesn't seem particularly realistic as a, as a policy solution. So you have to ask yourself, can, how long can they sustain this narrative that the world is about to end? Um, and you see these surveys of, of children about just the extraordinary levels of fearfulness about climate change because this has been shoved um, down their throat for, for so long in schools. And, and I remember this, I, I might be a, a few years older than, than than you guys, but even when I was at school, um, it, was, it was actually about the drought. There was a drought in, um, in Victoria where, where I grew up in Melbourne. Uh, the drought then disappeared and, and the, the, the dams filled again and it turns out there wasn't a drought. Um, it's it just this kind of repetitive cycle of, of doom and gloom and eventually um, the facts of the world will get in the way, which is people will grow up, they'll realise that the world is not over and they'll, they'll get focused on their lives and they'll get focused on what they want to do. And then the other fact of the matter is whether or not how much people are willing to pay for these environmental things, whether or not, although everyone will say we should do something about climate change, the extent to which people are actually willing to pay out of their own pocket for something to address climate change is also going to be a struggle here. And this, this is where the more extremities of the environmental movement are going to end up failing. Even if people have a lot of sympathy for them on the face of it. So in the end, I think we actually have the, the facts of the world on our side. Um, and it's just about making that point relentlessly in public debate, ensuring that there is an alternative, both an alternative narrative about the state of the environment, our ability to overcome, um, as well as a more specific alternative policy narrative about things we can do to address the challenges that we now face. Scotland um, now has the Greens in government. That's obviously something that I think a lot of people that, again, don't pay that much attention to to the intricacies of of politics and people's policies and kind of see the word green and go oh that's really that's really good and makes them feel all warm and fuzzy when in fact if you go read through the green the scotch green manifesto it is pretty deeply terrifying um i think there's one mentioned in there it essentially suggests they never want any new roads to be built ever and the reasoning for that is will you drive cars on them um which i think is an interesting policy take but uh speaks to issues again with the with the broader environmental debate and that these people are the ones with the loudest voices at the moment is there avenue do you think to to start trying to coax them in a in a proper and sensible direction or are they completely a lost cause well i will say at least the the celts how many hundreds of years ago seem to have a really anti-road successful anti-road policy when driving out the romans so it could work for them you never know as far as well we did a, we did a consultation with the smp actually and i'm i had quite a lot of dissent for it because they wanted to use um as matt was saying about children being scaremongered with apocalyptic claims of the climate um without actual accurate information or solutions provided they wanted to have Youth climate assemblies, youth climate committees, something like that, um, which is which is quite a concerning thing that, that you're going to defer to children and moral moral legislature. So it's I, I think there's quite a significant philosophical difference there between uh, not only the 
our principles first approach, but uh, also their put the realm of legitimacy that they put us as moral legislatures. However, I will say, hopefully, and this is me being rarely optimistic, as I said with the Tories, even if you're acting purely in electoral self-interest, um, reality will catch up with you eventually. You can't run around with your eyes shut, disbelieving in brick walls and not expect to run into one. So the fact that our policies are not only more principled, um, it means they're in line with universal law, if there can be such a thing, uh, it's also more practical in that they, they make money and they don't off the taxpayer um, because you're not pricing them out of house and home. So eventually you will have to come around and listen to our position if you don't want to lose electoral dominance. And they're, they're experiencing a little bit of renaissance at the moment just because people are very amenable to the independence arguments. But should Scotland break away from the UK, and I, I think it's well within their right to do so, you're going to be footing the bill for not just all the things the UK taxpayer are currently disproportionately paying for, uh, including education and the failing NHS and whatnot, but also the incredible costs of terrible socialist climate policies. And nothing will make you electoral poison and, and have to fall back on uh, the working policies that we have that you, that you disparage us for, um, like a loss of power. I, I look, I'm, I'm far from an expert on Scottish politics. Um, it does seem a bit bizarre for the SNP, which is more or less their case for independence, is based upon large revenues from um, North Sea oil and, and gas exploration to be in, in coalition of the Greens. I think it's something like 10% of the, the Scottish economy, um, even though the, the prices have gone down in recent years. That's still a substantial case for an, for an independent Scotland, which is already otherwise in, in, in deficit and dependent on subsidies from, uh, from England. I suspect that the story has got actually very little, though, to do with the environmental side of, of the argument. It's all about independence. Um, Nicola Sturgeon obviously wanted to, to make sure that they were closely uh, in, in the tent for her claims for another independence referendum. Uh, if, independent, if Scotland were to become independent, I, I think you'd need actually a serious environmental movement. And this is an idea that, well, maybe you actually need uh, an environment movement in Scotland that is not actually pro-independence. You could have a, a pro-unionist environmental movement um, that, that could be quite effective. Or um, at the same time, I think for our side of the case, we actually need, in across the UK, we need a pro-environment movement that's not anti-market um, and, and that you could have a, a far more pro-market um, political side of the environment movement doesn't seem to exist. It, it certainly does in somewhere like Germany, where the environment movement is, is far more mainstream and, and, and far more conservative in its in its disposition, and far more realistic um, in its disposition. So it's not out of the realm of, of, of potential, and it would certainly reset the, the debate about the environment if, if you could change the nature of the, the political environmental movement. Matthew, I, I know I've asked uh, Connor this question before, um, and it's something that I think is a fairly good question to end the podcast with. Are you optimistic um, if you look to the, the not too distant future? Is it something that uh, do you sit there and do you, do you think it's all going to be all right? Or are, you, or are you a bit more filled with trepidation? I'm a, a viciously, some would say naively optimistic uh, person uh, when it comes to, to our future. I think although we've got um, extreme amount of challenges and our political system is often failing to address them, I have extreme faith in the ingenuity of humanity to overcome our challenges. Just in the environmental space, we've got uh, something like cultured meat on the horizon that could basically end uh, the, the, the mass scale um, animal suffering, as well as the, the cost of mass cost of agriculture um, or, and, and meat when it comes to the environment. Um, we, we can have 
uh, newer, safer, higher energy sources, even on the renewable side, I think the technology is getting much better and are going to allow us to overcome those challenges um, with a perhaps a bit of a blip for the, the pandemic and, and the kind of global impact that's having. Um, I think that the economy, the global economy can recover and we can continue lifting people out of, millions of people out of poverty and, and raising living standards. Uh, and I, I see a lot of um, good news on the horizon, particularly after uh, the, the recent um uh, recent years. Uh, in some respects, a, a few years ago, uh, when we were saying, oh, it's time for the Roaring Twenties, I'm very excited for the Roaring Twenties, uh, you could easily respond by saying, well, actually, if you remember the Roaring Twenties didn't end so well, um, hopefully this Roaring Twenties starts badly, but it is you know, on an upward trajectory from this point forward. Thank you both very, very, very much. It's It's been hugely enjoyable, um, and hopefully we can get you both on again soon. Anytime. Thanks very much, Mike. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Green Market. Subscribe to our channels wherever you're listening to us to make sure you see every time we post a new episode.